Well, thank you for having us, folks. It is it's great. It is great to be here. And I bring greetings from um, Cornerstone Church in, in Liverpool. And um, so it's good to. I have never been to Oxford ever in my life. I was looking forward to coming. I was actually going to um, come yesterday and spend some time with Andrew. Um, but um, if you don't know Andrew, you, if you don't know him, you've seen him because he's like <laughs> he's like the biggest biggest. Biggest man you'll ever see. <laughs> uh, uh, like he's, he's, my kids are like over over with him. He's like this enormous, enorm- enormous guy. Uh, but uh, we love him, and we miss him, and we're thankful that he's with you guys. And he's in- incredibly blessed. And he's not here, so I want to I want to say that. And thank you. Are you going to keep him? <laughs> we'll see. Well, I say I, I I often say to him, Andrew, God is sovereign. But Steve Robbo has a plan for your life. So, uh, <laughs> so it's one of those. You know, your Bible's turned to Matthew 11. Dan asked me if um, I would, would just take some time to look at Matthew 11, verses 25, 25 through to um, the end of the chapter. I'm reading from the ESV, so apologies for that. Um, you'll catch up soon. Anyway, 25. <laughs> At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let me pray, folks. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. We praise and thank you for your word. And as has already been prayed, Lord, we want to hear you speak. I pray that the the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've got two talks for you today. The first one is looking at true revelation. And the second one is looking at true Rest, true revelation and true rest. And as I was preparing for the talks, I couldn't get out of my head the weight, the weight in our culture that is placed on these talks by simply placing the word truth in front of both of those words. True revelation and true rest. To talk about revelation, to talk about rest is something that our society and culture would be more than happy to engage with. Agreed? More than happy. People want new things. Often they want to find out new things from within them. And everybody wants rest. That's, that's what it is. Where I want to rest. I want to stop when I'm working. I want to keep working to the point of retirement. Or I, I, I need some sort of satisfaction in my life, in my soul. But as soon as you mention the word truth in front of these things, it brings some problems. It brings some problems. Not because we live in a world that doesn't believe in truth in any form, but rather because I think it rubs up against a culture that is based on my preference 
and my autonomy. So to actually put out, look, this is what revelation is, this is what rest is, if it doesn't fall in line with my preference and lead to some sort of autonomy, that's where it's going to rub up against our culture. Agree? Agree. It's interesting, postmodernism was born in opposition to the idea of having an absolute truth, objective truth. And it was an understanding that to claim absolute truth in any circumstance to any person would, to, to, would be to make it like a power play. I know the truth and you don't. You with me? A power play. So it bore out of this issue that everybody, every time somebody claims an absolute truth, that would lead to some sort of conflict which causes problems in some way. So the postmodern worldview was the truth is subjective. However, we live in a time where the discussion about subjective and objective truth has moved on. It's moved on. Thinking has moved such that not all truth is subjective, and I think people all agree that there are absolute truths. Actually, to say that there is no absolute truth is an absolute statement. Are you with me? We all know this. This has been discussed for, for years and years and years. So people have come to realize, actually, it's intellectually a little bit like... Mm, to say that there's no absolute truth just by making that comment. The culture that we now live in is less a postmodern culture, but rather a post-truth culture. We live in a society that elevates feelings, preference, and experience over truth. Yes, there are yes, I believe that there are objective truths, but if they don't line up with my feelings, my experience, and my preference, I don't care. Think about issues to, to do with humans, sex, gender. This is how I feel. So therefore, this is who I am. The biological facts may say one thing, but this is how I feel. So I don't care. Marriage. I know marriage is a good gift from God. Yes, I know that is to be true. But my experience was that my parents divorced when I was young. So therefore marriage is not good and it's something I'm keeping away from. The issue of abortion. I know that this baby in my womb is human and is a life. That's true. But my preference is that I don't want to be a parent now and that's more important. Are you with me? And faith. Yes, I see this gospel... And I believe it to be true. But I rejected it because it's not my preference to live in the way that Jesus calls his people to live. Folks, we live in a culture where we shift and move when it doesn't suit our preferences. And can I say this? That is, yes, people who are not Christians, but I think it's infiltrated the life of our churches. If what somebody is sharing, whether it to be true or not, does not fit with my experience, my feeling, or my preference, we shout it down. Either actually or metaphorically. We live in a post-truth culture where the guiding influence is preference, and the goal is autonomy. Autonomy being a law unto myself. What I prefer is that I want to be a law unto myself. So when you start thinking about revelation and rest, we do so in a world that may accept what we say is true, 
but reject it because it doesn't meet preference and it doesn't lead to autonomy. It is a different ball game that we live in now. Different world. Now what's interesting in this passage that we have before us is that Jesus is speaking into a context of people who have the true revelation of God, Jesus Christ himself, standing in front of them. And he is also inviting them to true rest but they still reject because he didn't bring the experience they were hoping for and didn't meet their preference. See, the context is, Jesus is speaking to people who would have been able to see. Now, folks, I think sometimes when we read the Bible, especially in these contexts, we always just assume that people were just blind, just didn't have a clue. Jesus did his ministry with people who knew the Torah. They knew the Old Testament. They were versed in it as, as young as kids. As, when I was a kid, by the time I was three, we, it, was like a, it was a loving home, but it was like a bang, bang, bang home. Right? Bible studies, all that sort of stuff. I knew, the, I knew all the books of the Bible by the time I was three. By the time I was five, I knew them backwards. Can you believe that? Bonkers. I can give you chapter and verse. I didn't, didn't know the context of all these verses. Fire them out. By the time I was like ten. Just like bang, 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 bang. And I call upon them and people think, wow, you know the scriptures. It was just because moment. I don't know about the context, but I'm... Are you with me? These people were versed in the things of God because it infiltrated their culture so much. It was so important for them to know who they were. They ignored it, they rejected it, they misunderstood it, but they knew it in some points. So Jesus is bringing his ministry. So what they would have seen in Jesus and heard from Jesus would have triggered things in their minds regarding prophecies that they'd heard. They were not ignorant. They understood. But it wasn't meeting the experience that they wished for, that they wanted. The beginning of chapter 11, quickly turn over there, beginning of chapter 11, what we see here is that John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of the Lord Jesus, John the Baptist is in prison and he sends some of his disciples and basically... Asking, verses 2 and 3, are you the one who is to come? Are you the promised Messiah? Are you the one that John has been talking about? There is one to come, there is one to come who is greater than me. I can't even tie his shoelaces. That's how good he is. And Jesus' response is, go back to John, verse 4, 5, and tell him what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news to preach to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Why does John send his disciples? Because maybe his idea of the coming of the kingdom wasn't him being in prison. You with me? That maybe wasn't his preference. So therefore I have to send, let me send my boys, let me go and check out. Jesus' response is, everything you read in Isaiah 61, that's what's happening. That's what's happening right in front of you. Then from verses 6, um, then, um, then we go from verses 7 to 15. The interesting thing about John, John is misunderstanding. He's sending his boys, but Jesus makes much of John. He makes much of him. This guy's a legend. This guy's done so much. No greater human being has ever been born apart from John. So there's the misunderstanding, but we do that. And then we drop down to verses 16 to, through to 24. And what we see there is the Lord Jesus giving words of judgment to the generation. Against the generation who were like children, he says. Children who were rejecting the truth of, of who he was because he didn't play the game they wanted him to play, verses 16 and 17. That's what he's saying. That's like a little song. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. You didn't dance to the tune that we were playing. You with me? 
And he deals, verses 18, with their inconsistency regarding their preference. He's saying, look, John came and he didn't eat and drink and you called him a demon. And I've come eating and drinking and you call me a drunk and a glutton. See the inconsistency in the preference? Well, this is what we wanted. No, 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 that's not what we wanted. In fact, is this what we wanted? Jesus is dealing with them and bringing words of judgment. You are all over the place. You're like kids. You're childish. And then verses 20 to 24, he's speaking to a context regarding the cities and the towns where Jesus made his headquarters in Capernaum. No other towns that he mentions here, specifically of him, saw and heard the ministry of Jesus than anyone else. Most of his miracles were done in that context. Most of his teaching was done in that context. And he brings a woe. Woe is you. You are rejecting the truth and you remain unrepentant. And the judgment will be, look, it's going to be far worse for Sodom and Tyre and Sidon. Sodom Sodom was known as Sin City. Look, the privilege that you've experienced of having truth itself, the Messiah himself, right in your presence, but it doesn't meet your preference, will bring a judgment far worse than what Sin City, Sodom itself, received or will receive. Folks, truth was right in front of them, but it didn't meet preference, so they rejected it. And it's into this context that Jesus declares true revelation, how it is received, and how true rest is found. Do you see that? See the way Jesus just deals with this situation, that actually people's feelings experience preference, and he remains firm. He holds his nerve and proclaims the truth in the midst of a context where people want their preferences met in a different way. Just as an aside, it's not my notes. This is so important for us as the church in this context. I have seen churches up and down the land once would be gospel holding churches that slowly change the truth of the gospel because it doesn't meet the preference and the feelings and the experiences of a generation that just want those things met. And as a result, there is no truth proclaimed. No truth Folks, you read in Revelation, and the kids are doing it, aren't they? You read in Revelation, this warning, this warning to all these churches. Let us, any of us, this church, our church, whatever gospel centers, think that we are fine, that we have constantly been back to the truth of who Jesus is, back to the truth of who Jesus is, back to the truth of who Jesus is, because the temptation not to proclaim truth in the midst of a culture that wants their feelings and preference and experiences met is enormous. Agreed? It's enormous. So I've got three things I just want to think, think about as we, as we just look at this fair part, first part regarding true revelation. True revelation is given to those who are childlike. True revelation is given to those who submit to the Lordship of Jesus. And true revelation is given to those who have had it revealed to them by Jesus. So number one, true revelation is given to those who are childlike. Verses 25 to 26. Jesus is declaring before people, but also praying, I thank you, Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. See, Jesus, in the midst of this context, in the midst of this opposition, thanks his Father that he's hidden the things of truth from those who are wise and have understanding. And actually, in contrast, that he's revealed them to those as he describes, 
or little children. See the contrast between two types of people? Those who are wise and understanding, what that means is those who are wise in their own eyes. Those who are wise in their own eyes and those who are like children. Those who are humble and willing to learn. And then verse 26 tells us that actually that is the will of God. The will of God is to reveal himself to those who are humble and willing to learn and not reveal himself, hide himself from those who are wise in their own eyes. Those who are proud. And folks, and this pride is in every form. Every form. Now, interestingly, in this context, the pride was seen in the pharisaical leaders of God's people who would walk around showing everybody how good they were, how zealous they were, what they had done for God in different contexts. But pride is seen in all different ways. Pride in every form. Pride in wealth. Pride in own goodness. I worked for a charity, Samaritan's Purse International. They do Operation Christmas Child. They do the shoeboxes. I was like a ginger father Christmas. So I used to go around all Eastern Europe for ten, six years just sharing, sharing the gospel with kids all over the world and giving them shoeboxes. But it was interesting the amount of people who, those that actually did love Jesus and those who didn't, who had so much proud, pride in their own goodness. And you saw that in how they critiqued and criticised people who didn't do their thing, didn't do their, the shoeboxes, who alternatively look for other opportunities to save. So you see this pride in, in wealth, in, in goodness, in intelligence, in gifting, in achievements. J.C. Ryle, who's the first bishop of Liverpool, said that nothing is so likely to keep a man out of heaven and prevent him seeing Jesus as pride. He also said this, so, so long as we think we are something, we shall never be saved. Wow. As long as we think we are something, we shall never be saved. It's a bit harsh. That's what it says here. I thank you that you've hidden the truth from those who are wise in their own eyes. Pride, pride is seen in so many different ways. But it is childlike humility that God reveals his truth to. Amen? Childlike humility. What do children do? Children ask. Children explore. Children don't care, obviously until they get to a certain age, children don't care if it sounds foolish. Do they? Why? 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 I'm sick of the word why. Why? That's why. Why? Why is a crooked letter? That's what it is. You know, and we just give bonkers response. They don't care if they keep repeating themselves. But, but they, they, they want to learn, they want to know, they want to explore, they want to ask. Folks, my kids come to me all the time. Why do they come to me all the time? Because they trust me. Because they trust me. My Ella, who's 13, doesn't trust me at all. Alright, okay. <laughs> Bottom line, she knows if it all went pear-shaped, she'd run to me. But like, uh, I'm, I'm getting the, the rolled eyes. Oh, Dad. Oh. <laughs> all that sort of stuff, you know what I mean? Ella was the type of kid that turned 13 when she was four. You know, as soon as, as, soon as we went into reception, dropped it off, can I have a kiss? And I got the cheek. You know what I mean? I, it, it was bound to happen. Okay? See, my kids come to me because they trust me. See, my kids, in the cold light of night, know who they are in light of me, their father, don't they? In light of me, their father. I'm bigger. I know more. I understand a little bit more. 
They know who they are in light of me. See, I know this because they ask me all the questions. All these questions thinking that I can give them all the answers. They depend on me. A child should know that their father loves them, cares for them, and is willing to answer the questions. Children should be dependent upon their father, on their parents. See, what's interesting is Jesus says, he thanks him that it's been revealed to those who are childlike. He doesn't say childish. He doesn't say childish. See, childishness is thinking you know best. Doesn't it? It's rejecting the truth for your preference. It's allowing truth to be trumped by feeling or experience. My, my, my son, uh, Elijah, he, um, he's, he's, he's eight years of age. When he was a little toddler, he was a, he was a nightmare. And Sean used to go to, like, we'd come with all the kids to things like this, and the first thing Sean would say, he's a, he's a difficult child, but he's going to be an amazing adult. All right, so he's one of those, you know, he'd, like, walk in the room thinking, you know, think he owned the place. He walked into church once in a pink, fluffy coat of his sister's. Didn't bat an eyelid, just walked in. He's one of those kids, you know what I mean? He's just like, yeah, my dad's a pastor. I can wear this if I want. I'm like, oh, you got, you got that totally wrong, kid. All right. <laughs> are you with me? But there are moments where Elijah, that Elijah knows something to be true, but the truth of what is going to happen or the truth of the situation doesn't fit with what he wants in the moment. What does he do? He kicks off. He has a bit of a tantrum. He has to be sent to the door. He just... My older girls are the same. You know, Ella, and like I said, she's, I'm giving her hard rap. She's beautiful. She's wonderful. But at 13, she's in the situation where we're going to go for a family walk. And granted, it's difficult for Ella, but she's got a wheelchair so she could come. It's nothing to do with her physical issues. It's everything to do. She's 13. She doesn't want to go for a walk with her mum and dad. And we get there, I'm not going. I'm not going. What do you mean you're not going? I'm like, I'm not going. I, I didn't know we were going to do this. Are you with me? That's childish. Why? Because it doesn't fit the preference that she wants. Even though the truth is, you know you're coming. <laughs> <laughs> See, the Pharisees in the towns that Jesus had been speaking to and doing his ministry into the midst were being childish, not childlike. They were saying, this is not how, how we wanted it, so we're going to reject you. Being wise in your own understanding and pride, folks, is childish. Knowing ourselves right in light of a holy, awesome, wonderful, gracious, enormous God. And knowing that we deserve nothing but His grace, nothing but we receive His grace and His mercy, is being childlike. Amen? If you're trusting in your own ability and intelligence to get to God in heaven, I'm telling you now, it's going to be frustrating for you. Frustrating for you. Bishop JC said this as well, the beginning of the way to heaven is to feel that we are on the way to hell and be willing to be taught by Jesus. The beginning of the way to heaven is to feel and know that we are on the way to hell and be willing to be taught by Jesus. Folks, this, this issue of wisdom and, and humility and wisdom in the world's eyes and foolishness in the world's eyes 
It's all over the Bible. Let me read you this from 1 Corinthians. Paul says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. The world did not know God through wisdom. And it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews, they demand signs, and Greeks, they seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man. Amen? And the weakness of God is stronger than man. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see that? To be wise in your own eyes. To see, think that you can, can, can understand what real truth and what the purpose of life is outside of God puts you in a position that if you find it, if you think you find it, you're able to boast over the one that has created you, who is truth himself and has revealed truth himself. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Folks, God reveals himself, true revelation to those who are childlike. Number two, true revelation is given to those who submit to the Lordship of Jesus. Verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. All things. Jesus is saying, look, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. All things means all things. Everything, but specifically I think in this case, probably refers to everything needed with respect to carrying out his ministry of redemption, including the revelation of who he is and who the Father is to people who are blind like you and me. See, Jesus has all authority and power over everything, including us, including us. So this strive in our culture for my preference to be met so I can have a life of autonomy is totally counter-gospel. Folks, even as believers, if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're, you, you know, you know that the guiding principle of your life is your preference, even in the life of the church, and you strive for autonomy more than the beautiful community that we a part of, not going to be a law unto myself, is actually to reject the Lordship of Jesus. To reject Him. He has authority and power over everything, including us. And our soul's interest is placed into His hands, not ours. See this? Our soul's interest. It's interesting, as we move towards rest, and we'll look at that later on, as we move towards rest in light of truth, what we're seeing is the truth of knowing who Jesus, true revelation is submitting to him, because actually the rest that our souls pine for 
Sit in his hands. Sit in his hands. The one who has lordship over us. So to reject that lordship is to walk away from the rest that he offers. Folks, truth is revealed when we see that Jesus is over all. And seeking autonomy from him will mean blindness to truth. See, this is what was happening all around Jesus at this point. They refused to recognize him as God's anointed one. They refused to recognize him as God's promised king. They refused to recognize him as the son of man. They refused to recognize him as the Messiah. But folks, in order to know the truth of who we are, the truth of where we are going, what is promised, we need to remember that Jesus, who is the truth, claimed to be the way, the truth and the life. He claimed to be the door that through him we must enter. He claimed to be the shepherd of whose voice we are to hear and to follow. He claimed to be the bread of life in whom, in order for us to, to survive and to live and have to hope, we need to feast on him. He said that he was the light to the world, so therefore we must walk after him in the darkness of this world. And he says that he is the fountain, therefore we must be washed in his blood if we are to be cleansed and made right before a holy God. Folks, we have to submit to the Lordship of Jesus because the Father has given him all authority, but also who he claims to be and what he promises. True revelation is given to those who submit to the Lordship of Jesus. And number three, true revelation is given to those who have had it revealed to them by Jesus. Verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. It's interesting here. We see this beautiful relationship, don't we? This exclusive relationship between Jesus and his Father. Only the Father knows the Son. And only the Son knows the Father. See, see my boys are a little bit like that. They think that. You know, they, that's my dad. I know my dad. You know what I mean? I know my dad. You know what I mean? And then they, they get a... You know, a short, sharp shock when they realise that actually their mum knows their dad more than that they know their dad. You with me? My relationship with my kids is not exclusive. There's not an exclusivity. There is. I'm always going to be their father. They're always going to be my children. So there is in that point. But the reality is this. They are not the only ones that know me. In all their fullness. Whatever that means. I'm not the only one who knows them. In fact, their mother probably knows them better than I do. Are you with me? But what we see, this beautiful interaction, this beautiful exclusive relationship, only the Son knows the Father. Only the Father knows the Son. And then here's this beautiful thing. Because the authority has been given to the Son from the Father, it is the Father's will that the Son chooses people to know Him and to know His Father. You seen that? Isn't that beautiful? That actually, the, the, it is the will of God, He who is holy, high, above all things. It is His good, gracious will for His Son, who knows Him like no other, to reveal to those who are blind and who reject and care more about preference and feeling and experience and deserve His wrath, not a relationship and not His love, not His grace and not His mercy. It is His will for His Son 
to reveal the wonder of this relationship, the wonder of the Father in the face of the Son to those who the Son chooses. Chooses. It's not like we can go on a path's journey and suddenly, oh my word, there's Jesus. No. We walk around blind unless the Son chooses. It is Jesus who reveals. That's what it says here. It is Jesus who opens blind eyes to see the truth about Him and the Father. True revelation is down to God's gracious election and choosing. Folks, I know that is hard for some of us. It's hard for us to grasp. But if this is the word of the Father that reveals the wonder of the Son in and through the Spirit, and if we are people that want to know truth and live in the midst of truth, we submit to the Lordship of Jesus. So therefore, even though we struggle to get our minds around it, this is what it says. It is down to His gracious election and choosing that no one is born a Christian. No one stumbles across becoming a Christian. That Jesus graciously says, here I am. And in seeing me, you see the wonder of my Father. Now this is something that is just not like a verse. And often we'll go to the verses that we had read for us beautifully this morning from Ephesians. Before the foundation of the world, we were, we were, God set his affections upon us. He elected us. Those of us who were here before the foundation. But it was Jesus who spoke in these terms in his ministry. John 6 verse 17. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? Did I not choose you? He says that, I, cho- I chose you, I came to you, come follow me, and I will meet fishes of men. What did they do? The Bible tells us, says it in Mark, they dropped their nets, left their families, and they went. It was irresistible. I'm going. I chose you. John 13, 17 to 18, he says this, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking to all of you. I know, I know whom I have chosen. The scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Look, even in the, the contrast of the, the disciples, I've chosen all of twelve of you, and one of you is going to betray me. I chose that. I ordained that. I'm in control of this. John fifteen, fifteen to sixteen. You did not choose me, he says, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command to you, so that you will love one another. You didn't choose me, I chose you, and I've appointed you to go and bear fruit. John fifteen nineteen. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. In John 17, the beautiful prayer before he dies, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. It is me, he says to the Father, that has revealed to them the love that you have for me. And the love that you have for me, I want that love to be with them. Folks, the reality is this true revelation is given to those who have had the Son of Man reveal it to them. And you know the wonderful thing for us in that? Because He chose us, we can't be lost. Because he chose us, we can't walk away. 
Because he chose us, we can't just wake up one morning and go, well, my preference and my feelings and my experience is such that I am done with this, so I am off. Because if he has chosen you, you cannot be lost and one day you will be back. You'll be back. That's wonderful, isn't it? That in and of ourselves, we want nothing to do with God. Because what, who he is, what he calls us to, does not fit within our sinful preference. But he graciously opens up our eyes and draws us to himself. He has chosen us. See, the question is, how do you know if you're chosen? I think the passage is clear from this, that the chosen are the humble children who submit to Jesus. If you're full of your own importance and you do not submit to the Lordship of Jesus, you are probably not chosen by him. But if you're seeking to be humble under the Lordship of Jesus, you're probably one of his children. I think this is one of the most encouraging things, personally, as a church pastor. Because it means that my efforts as somebody that teaches the Bible or preaches or does evangelism, what it means is that my efforts, my efforts on one level, on, on, on one level, don't do anything. You with me? They do, because his word doesn't return void. But it's not that I'm able to convince people. Oh, it's because of my, you know, I'm never articulate, I'm scouse. You know what I mean? It's because the way you said that, it's because the way you did this, it's because you, now God will use failings and weakness and brokenness, but it's the wonder that it is God's gracious will to, to make himself known in and through his son to the people that he chooses. If you're a Christian here today, that's what he's done for you. And you can call about parents and, you know, in Liverpool everybody got saved in 1984, the Billy Graham thing. You know, even if they weren't born, they were saved there. <laughs> the way people speak. You know, I was a Billy Graham thing. And I'm like, he died, you know. Last year. How long have you been a Christian? Six months. But, you, 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 but people can, and hear me, let's thank God that he's used, used his people to reveal, but ultimately he has revealed himself to you because you've been chosen, which is great news. That's wonderful as a pastor. And I get more of a kick out of the fact that people come to know Jesus and we've had no part of it. I genuinely do. Genuinely do. In, uh, we replanted a small brethren church in 2009. And, uh, and, in, and in 2009, we, uh, we, there was probably 15 old, older people in the brethren church and myself and Sean, uh, about 15 of us in total, arrived to sort of re- restart, replant the, this brethren assembly. And long story short, you could have gone in a time machine 50 years ago and what you experienced on a Sunday morning was exactly the same. It's just the people were a little bit older. Probably wearing the same suits, but a little bit older. All right? Just a little bit older. And they were lovely people that loved Jesus. But actually, what had happened was the culture around them had changed and they they weren't able to engage with the questions of the culture with the relevance of the gospel. And as a result of that, they were panicking and they were dying and they, they thought they were going to close. They were that desperate, they asked me to go. That's how bad it was. So we ended, we, ended, we ended up going. And, you know, we had a wonderful time. They were delighted. We had a few small children and all these different things. A few months in, we'd have people visiting because when something new happens, people always want to go. Beware of those people. All right, okay? Because they're usually coming because they don't like what they have. You know what I mean? So it's like, ask the right questions. You know what I mean? Don't get me wrong. If you've arrived at this church, you're welcome. <laughs> More than welcome. Is that right, Dan? Is that right? Is that right? Yeah. More, more than welcome. 
There are legitimate reasons for moving churches. All right, okay. <laughs> but we had a lot of visitors. We had a lot of people coming. But nobody had got saved. We were about three months in. And as a pastor and wanting to replant the church, that's what, that's what I want to see someone get saved. We're in baptisms. You know, I, mean, I want to see these old people crying because they haven't seen a baptism for years. You know, all, all good reasons, probably thwarted, deprived, all these different things. And this one week we decided that we would have a week of prayer, Monday to Friday, a week of prayer where we would um, meet every morning at 6.30 to pray solely that God would save people. So I said to everybody, on, uh, we, we, um, we were just about to come out in the Sunday service and I was going to share this, come at half past six, every, every morning, Monday to Friday, bring names of friends and family and people that you know that don't know Jesus and we're going to pray specifically for them. Now that particular Sunday where I shared this, there was a young man, there was only 25, 26 of us, a young man who was sat right at the back next to these two ladies, Pat and Joan, who'd been at the church, both touching their 70s, but been at the church since they were like 11 and 12, these two ladies. Um, lovely, godly women, never married, decided to buy a house together in their 50s. Just a real blessing to us. And they sat there, this young man sat next to them. Now I, I never spoke to him that day, but one of the elders came to me, which is bonkers by the way, Planting a church, 27. A guy comes in, never been to church before, Romanian, was just interested. And I didn't speak to him, because I had lots to do with a church of 25 people. You know what I mean? I mean Paul. <laughs> Bonkers. Anyway, so anyway, sitting at the back, we share this. The next morning, we meet at half past six on a Monday. Now bear in mind, there were 15 older people, and we took a team of about 15. A few people left straight away. Most of the people that turned up were the older people at half past six in the morning. The youngsters had to have their sleep. So we sat in a circle. And our, our, our church building is not much bigger than this. And the doors at the end. And we sat in a circle. And we were just going round. And I just said to different people, who, who do you want us to pray for? Who should we pray for? We went round. We got to Pat and Joe. And they said, can we pray for that young man, Vlad, who came to church yesterday? It's a Romanian guy, never been to church before. Can we pray for him? Yeah, no problem. So we spent about an hour. And we prayed for different people. And we prayed for Vlad. We left at half past seven. We came back the next the same morning. Same people again. All sat in the same spaces, because that's standard. All sat in the same chairs. Went round again. Who do you want to pray for? Can we pray for that young man, Vlad? So we started praying at half past six. Twenty to seven, doors open. Who walks in? Vlad. I'm sitting there, watching the door. All these people, bearing my years, not seeing God move in, in, in those ways. All sitting around going... Oh my word. You can see you can see on the face. God answers prayer with a yes sometimes. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, and Vlad walks in, young lad, early twenties, walks in, sits down on the chair, right in front of me. Like this. I spent the whole time looking at him like that. Ex policeman, I'm thinking, Romanian, twenty five, not got a job, never been to church. What are you doing? What are you doing at quarter seven in the morning? I'd pick the window to throw him out of in case he grabbed one of the ladies' handbags out. I was there, I was ready for him. I've confessed this to him since, don't worry. And he's there. So literally, we carry on praying, we finish. And we put tea and coffee on for people because some people were going off to work and go back to bed or whatever. And they were having tea and coffee. And Vlad came up to me and he said, can I have a word? And I said, yeah, no problem. He said, I used to laugh at people like you. And I distinctly remember thinking, you would not say that if you knew what I've been thinking for the last hour. <laughs> he said, I used to laugh at people. I said, what do you mean? He said, Christians. When I was in Romania, I'd go out my way just to, to laugh at them, to debate with them, to, to, to mock them. But something's happened to me. All these people stayed. You know, all these people who were meant to be going to work, all were like, 
Watch him going on. He says, he says to me, I left Romania 18 months ago, never to return. As soon as we could get out, I got out and I arrived and I went to a town called Chester. And Chester's just outside of Liverpool and I, I was an au pair for a Hungarian family looking after those children. He said to me, when I arrived 18 months ago, I couldn't speak English. I'm like, seriously? He, sp- he speaks better English than me. And I was like, seriously? He goes, yeah, I taught myself English by watching CBBS looking after these kids. That was true. I'm like, okay, he says, he says, and then the, the family left, so I know it's, now bear in mind at the time, R- Romanian folks couldn't, couldn't, could live in the UK, but they couldn't work, so it was all, it wasn't, it, it was, it wasn't allowed, and they left, there was no way I was going back to Romania, so I thought, I need to go somewhere, so I'd been to Liverpool a few times, so I, arrived, I thought, big, big city, I'll arrive in Liverpool, I'll find some work, so he ends up coming to Liverpool, and when he, he, he arrives in Liverpool, he gets himself a job with a lady who's a property developer. And his job was that he would clear out the houses that she wanted to develop and then be security at night. And he said, I did that for a few weeks and then she moved me to Stockport, which is a little town just outside of Manchester. And when I went to Stockport, it was an old old people's home, like a big terraced house, that was an old people's home that she was going to convert into flats. So again, my job was to clear it all out and overnight be security. And after about two or three days, I just got totally bored. So I went looking for something to read. And when I walked into the room, the first book I picked up was a Good News Bible. So I started to read it. And I'm like all excited. Where did you, you, know, where did you begin? You know, thinking Mark's gospel. He goes, at the beginning. <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. He says, I just started reading at the beginning. And I got hooked. He said to me, I want to be an engineer. So when I got through to the t- tabernacle bit, I, I was trying to get stuff to try and work out what it could look like. Folks, four weeks... Vlad read the Bible cover to cover. Some of us have been Christians 40 years and have never read the cover to cover. Cover to cover. And I'm like, all right. He said, and I carried on reading. And when I got to the bit about Jesus, I thought to myself, only a God could say and do these things. And then I read about his crucifixion. I thought, what's that all about? Then I read that he's risen from the dead. And I think, what's that all about? And then I carry on. And I, you know, God, as my judge, this is what he said. I got to Paul's letters. That's what he said. And when I read them, the cross and resurrection of Jesus made sense. And then the rest made sense. I'm like, who have you been talking to? He said, no one. I'm like, he said, well, I chatted to the Mormons and it didn't make sense. I went to the Catholic Cathedral and it just didn't make sense. And then you put a flyer through our door, my door about four, you lived around the corner four or six weeks ago. You put a flyer through my door and I thought, oh yeah, maybe, maybe, I'm not, too, I'm not too sure. And I was walking past this morning at nine o'clock and I saw some guys playing guitars who were wearing flip-flops and shorts. And I thought to myself, oh, you know, I could go in there. Steve, I don't know why I was up at nine o'clock because I never up at nine o'clock. Never. I was going to the shop to get a drink. So I come in the church and we were preaching Mark's gospel. And I, you were talking about Jesus and I, I've got to speak to that guy. I've got to speak to him. He says, I believe Jesus is who he says he is. I don't know what that means. I find myself talking to myself, walking down the street. I'm like, that's prayer. (laughs) Seriously? And on that morning, after years and years of prayer, a young man that we had nothing to do with had had the truth of who Jesus Christ was revealed to him and he became a follower of the Lord Jesus. I've had these issues. He had these problems. He was addicted to weed and he had issues with... He said, I've stopped smoking, but I still have weed. 
he did say to me one day, Steve, read Revelation after a joint. It's amazing. <laughs> he did. He did. He denies that he said that to me, but he did. He genuinely did. For three years, for three years, by God's grace, Vlad couldn't work, so he, he just hung around with me and different people in the church. He lived, lived with an elder. who He had nowhere to go. So an elder opened up his house and said, come and live with me. Free rent. Come and live with me and my family. He hung out with us. He hung out. He learned. After 18 months, he preached his first sermon in English. And by God's grace now, Vlad is now married. So you know, there's a story behind that. A Romanian lady. And uh, he came back to He came after about five years. He came to me. Four years. And he said, Steve, I need to go back to Romania. I was like, why? He goes, he says, I left Romania thinking that I will never return. But I left Romania not knowing Jesus. I've come to England and he found me and I've got to go back because my country needs him. So in a context where everybody's leaving because of preference and feeling and experience, here God graciously reveals himself and he is now back in Romania just outside Bucharest as an assistant pastor of a church overseeing youth work and church planting. Wonderful. Folks, true revelation. True, true True revelation is given to those who have had it revealed to them by Jesus. He who is truth graciously reveals himself to the chosen who like children submit and trust their souls to his authority and his saving power. Folks, worry not about the secret move of God in salvation. Worry not about it. But worry about whether or not you are responding to the gentle, gracious, loving invite of Jesus. Which we'll look at after we have a break. Can I pray? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. By your spirit we pray that you will stir our affections for him who is truth, Jesus Christ. Amen.